If you're not already there, you can be turning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 16 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And we're going to read all the way down to chapter 9, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner." And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. Father, we come before you in this moment, and once again I ask that you would quiet our minds and our hearts, Father, we come before You to be refreshed. Our hearts, our souls, they need to be refreshed. And I ask that that would happen here and now this morning as Your Word is unfolded before our very eyes. May Your will be accomplished. May Your purposes be accomplished here this morning. And may You fill us with Your Spirit. May You fill me with Your Spirit and enable me to communicate these great truths to your people, and may you fill them with your Spirit and enable them to hear them, to receive them, to learn from them, to lay them to heart. 
And in the midst of all of this, may you help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ shining brightly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things that we have seen over and over again within this book is that life under the sun is mysterious and cannot be figured out. No matter how hard we may try, we just cannot understand why certain things happen within our broken world. We can understand the the overarching plan that God has because He has revealed it to us in His Word. We know where all creation is going, that He's going to restore all things, that Christ is going to come back. We know those things. He has revealed those things to us in His Word. But in the meantime, the here and now, what unfolds before our very eyes in this life, there are things that God does or things that He allows to happen that we don't completely understand. We do not completely understand why He does what He does in the ways that He does them. And if you're like me, then you could think of at least a dozen things that have happened within your own life that you can't explain. It's mysterious to you. And here's some things that I thought of as I was preparing for this sermon. First question I thought of, I've actually thought about this one a lot. Maybe you have as well. The question is, why was I born where I was? You know, why did God put me where He put me. Out of all the places in this world, I was born in Monroe, Louisiana. Raised in Downsville, Louisiana. You know, I often think, God, I like mountains. I like seeing snow consistently. You know, why wasn't I born there? Somewhere that has a little bit more scenery than we have here, right? So I just, have you ever thought about that? Why did God put you here? Out of all the places that you could have been born, all the communities that you could have been raised up, why did He put you here? You don't know. Why did God give me the parents that He did? I don't know. You know, there are many people in the world who are born into families that you could say are a living hell. Why did God give me good parents? I don't know. Why did God take the life of one of those parents when I was nine? You know, such a young child. Why did God do that? Why does He do things like that to to young children? Why does He take their parents? Why does He take their life? I don't know. Why did God give me my wife this past April? You know, I prayed for years for a wife. And he decided to answer that prayer this past April. You know, why did he answer it then and not sooner? You know, I waited a good long while to have a wife, to experience the good gifts of marriage. But he he answered it when he saw fit, and I don't know why. Why did God work things out so that I would be the pastor of this church standing before you now proclaiming his word? I don't know. It puzzles me every week 
because I could think of at least a hundred men who are a lot more qualified to stand before you and proclaim His Word. You know, very often I stand up here and my sermons are sometimes not as good as other ones are. Sometimes they're extra long. Why did He put me here? You know, why am I the one who is standing before you proclaiming His Word? Why was I chosen for however long to shepherd you underneath His shepherding? I could keep going. I could keep going on and on with, with questions that I've asked of my own life and I don't know the answers to. I mean, I can give some answer, but ultimately I just... I don't know why. I don't know why God has done what He has done in the ways that He has done them. And here are some other questions that we tend to ask when certain things happen and we don't know why. Why was I a part of this disaster? Why did it have to destroy my home? You think of the two hurricanes that just recently struck the U.S. We were praying about them a moment ago. Hurricane Florence, Hurricane Michael. I'm sure there's a lot of people asking... Why? Why was my house swept away? And why is there four feet of water in my living room or, or whatever? Why did I lose my job? Out of all the people working, they took mine. Why God? Why did I have to be the one who lost my job? Out of all the people, mine was taken. Why did I have to be the one who got sick from cancer or whatever disease? We have much of that in our community right now. And it's very easy to ask why. Why now? And why can't I get sick when I'm like two weeks before I die or something? You know, why does it happen whenever someone's young in their prime of life? Why does God allow sickness to come in times that He does to the people that He allows them to come to? Why did my dad, mom, husband, wife, brother, sister, grandma, or grandpa have to be the one to die? And why did they have to die when they died or how they died? Why do I have to be the one to suffer the way that I do? Now I realize that in the midst of all those questions, we can provide some answers to them. There are answers that we can provide that make sense of the situation in some way. Like we've seen throughout this book, Ecclesiastes. The preacher has been able to provide us with some good answers. But at the end of the day, he is forced over and over again to say that wisdom is far from him. And we're the same way. Ultimately, we cannot provide the answer that sheds light on why God does all that He does. It is beyond our wisdom. It is beyond your wisdom. And that is how the preacher begins here in verse 16. As he begins to, to draw this book to a conclusion, we find him once again confessing that he does not possess an answer. He says in verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, 
Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. The preacher once again tells us that he has applied his heart or his whole being, that's what heart means there, he has applied all of his being, his whole self, he has applied it to understand the difficult things of life the things that make people lose their sleep, like the questions that we mentioned earlier that I was naming off a moment ago. And and what he finds in the midst of all this is the work of God, as he says. Then I saw, so through all of this, through these people, including the preacher himself, losing sleep on trying to answer all the difficult questions of life, Through all of that, he sees the work of God. And that he has made it to where we cannot find all the answers that we want. No matter how hard we may search, we will not find understanding. God has made things play out in a difficult and mysterious way. So difficult and mysterious that even if you meet a wise man who claims that he can explain the difficult things of life, don't believe him. He's lying. He doesn't know. Because as the preacher makes clear in the second part of verse 17, he says, even the wise man cannot find it out. He does not know. The wisest person that you will ever meet will still meet walls that he cannot see through. There will still be questions that he, she, or whoever cannot answer. But although, like we were saying earlier, although overall we cannot understand the difficult things of life, there are still some things that we can understand and even learn from. And the preacher, as he's been doing over the course of his book, wants to use his wisdom to help us live our lives well. So what follows in chapter 9 are three things that he wants us to see and to learn from. The first is he wants us to understand that death is certain. That death is certain. That's in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 9. Second, he wants us to understand that life itself is uncertain and outside of your control. That's in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9. And then sandwiched between the two, sandwiched between those first two things, is that he wants us to enjoy the gifts that God has given you for as long as He gives them to you. And that's how we're going to handle those three things. We're going to begin with death being certain, verses 1 to 8. Then we're going to jump down to verses 11 to 12 and see how life is uncertain and outside of our control. And then we'll go back up to the middle and see what He commends to us, which is once again joy. So in verses 1 to 8, understand that death is certain. And he starts out saying in in verse 1, But all this I I laid to heart, examining it all, 
how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So within verse 1, he tells us that he is reflecting on things or laying things to heart, as he says. That's what he means there. He's reflecting on it. And what he is reflecting on, I think, is everything that he has previously shown us throughout the book. The whole book of Ecclesiastes. Everything that we've seen. He is reflecting upon those things. And he is reflecting on how God is sovereign over it. Everything. Everything that we have seen so far in this book, the good and the bad, God has complete control over. Now in light of that, in light of reflecting on the truth of God's sovereignty, we would expect Him to say something good, right? I mean, that's good that God is sovereign over everything, is it not? So we would expect Him to maybe rejoice in the fact that God holds every person and their deeds in His hand. But that's not what He says. No, instead what He says is that man doesn't know whether God's sovereignty is loving or hateful. Now why would He say that? That's a very confusing thing to say. And so how are we to understand what He means by saying that? He gives us the answer in verses 2 and 3. He says, it is the same for all, since the same event. Stop there for a second. When he talks about event, he's talking about death there. That's the event, or literally the accident, which is what that word means. The same accident. Death. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, you see what he's doing here? He's putting the good person right alongside the, the wicked person. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event, that death happens to all. And I want you to notice that not only is he saying that death itself is an evil thing. Death is evil. It is an evil thing that happens to the children of man. But also the way that death does its work is an evil thing. And you can see that. You know, as we watch death unfold before our very eyes, it's evil. It's evil how it takes the life of a person, how it strips everything from them. As you literally watch a person decay, it's an evil. And it does its work in evil ways. That's what he's showing here. And that's the reason why the preacher says what he says about God's sovereignty. Because both the righteous and the wicked are in the hand of God. He is sovereign over both. He holds the righteous and He holds the wicked in His hands. And both face the same fate. They both die. 
And for us to think about that reality, to watch it happen to people we love and then eventually happen to us, ourselves, well, sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, it's hard to see how God's sovereignty could possibly be loving in that moment. Think about the example of Job. We've talked about Job a lot throughout the book of Ecclesiastes and we were looking at him a couple weeks ago in, in Sunday school. Job suffered greatly. He had really bad things happen to him. And he did not know why. In fact, throughout the whole course of the book, he never figures out exactly why he suffers. Now we know, the reader, we know because it says at the beginning that Satan comes before God and God actually points out Job to him. He says, have you considered my servant Job? You know, I bet if Job could have seen that moment, he would have been like, what the heck, God? Why don't you have to point me out? But that's what God does. He says, have you considered my servant Job, who is blameless, who obeys me, who follows my commandments? And then he suffers. But Job can't see any of that. All he sees is that everything's been stripped away from him and he doesn't know why. And so in that moment, as we see as the book unfolds, Job begins to question in his heart, what is God doing? And it's the same for us. You think about a moment of suffering. You know, it's very easy to, to concentrate just on what we have before our face. And in that moment, we think, where's God? What, he's, what is He doing? How can this possibly be used for my good? And how is His sovereignty loving? Right now, I feel as if you hate me. Not that you love me. So that's what He's saying here. It is very easy in the moment to feel like God hates you and not being a loving God. Now before we move on, I want you to turn with me to, to Romans chapter 5 because this is one of the reasons why Paul wrote what he wrote to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, Paul says there, writing to the Roman Christians, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, that X's out the fact that God is hating you in that moment because you have peace with God. Everything that happens from then on out, God does for your good. You have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of glory, in the hope of the glory of God. Now listen carefully what he says next. Not only that, not only in the glory, the hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
You can turn back to Ecclesiastes. So in light of what Paul wrote to the Roman Christians and to you for that matter, those words, if you are a Christian, are for you, then you know that in the midst of your suffering, God does not hate you. He in fact loves you and is producing something in you that you just can't see in the moment. So what we do with these verses is we take them and we use them to take our sight, our eyesight, above the sun to where Christ is and the love that has been poured out on us. The preacher continues in the the second part of verse 3, saying, Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madnesses in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. That's the second part of verse 3. With this verse, he highlights the fact that not only is evil outside of us, you know, in death, you know, it's very easy to say that death is outside of us. It's an, an outside event that comes upon us. But with this verse, he's saying that not only is it outside of us, but it is inside of us. Evil is within your own heart. In and of yourself, you are an evil person. Because you are a sinful person. A person who has rebelled against God Almighty. Our very hearts are full of evil and madness while we live. And then we die. But then in verse 4, but, a big but, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. So although death is certain for all of us, while you are alive or joined with the living, as he says, you have hope. Now what kind of hope? What does this hope look like? What does he mean that while we are still alive, we have hope? He tells us in verses 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So you see what he's saying there. It's similar to what we saw back in chapter 7. You Remember what we saw there? He, he was laying out all these wise sayings to answer the question, what we should be doing, while we live, and the first, four vo- the first four verses were focused on looking at death and learning how to live in light of it. That's what he showed us there. And he's showing us the same thing here. The reason that the living have hope is because they know that they will die at some point. And they are able to observe that truth and therefore learn how to live well in light of it. The dead, on the other hand, can't do that because obviously they're already dead. They're not going to learn from anything. Their learning is over with. They had their chance to learn and now they're dead. 
The dead, on the other hand, cannot do this because they are already dead. Their share, as he says, in this life is over and everything that they cared so much about has perished. I think that's what he's trying to do there as he, he names off their, their love, their hate, their envy, and how they've already perished. Everything that they cared so much about in life is now gone. Their share has been taken from them. And that's why the preacher says that a, a living dog, which was nothing but a scavenger in the preacher's day, is better than a dead lion. Now let's think about this for a moment. Yes, it's true that the lion is a magnificent creature. He's one of the top predators on, in the food chain. But what do all of those characteristics do him now. Nothing, right? It's dead. His magnificence, his spot on the top of the food chain, does him no good now. He's dead. Vultures will pick at his flesh now. The once beautiful creature is dead and the living scavenger dog is better because it has life and opportunity. The living dog is better because it has the day of opportunity and the lion doesn't. So the preacher is telling us here in verses 1 to 8 that death is certain and that we should learn that bitter truth while we are alive and not when death comes and stares us in the face. You know, if, if the first time that you learn about death is whenever it comes for you, then you're in a bad spot. Because there's no learning, there's no living well that's about to happen in that moment. If the first time you have ever considered death is when it comes for you and takes your life, then you're going to be like the dead that he describes here. So He is urging us to take the day of opportunity, which is today, while you have life and breath within you, and use it to look forward at that day and learn how to live well in light of it. Now at this point, we may be tempted to think to ourselves, yeah, I understand that. I understand that death is certain. You know, I watch people die all the time. I know that it's certain. But I have plenty of time. Death is still a long ways off for me. You know, I'm, I'm young, 25. I'm not going to die anytime soon. Maybe. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe you'll live to be 105 or something crazy like that. But then again, maybe not. Maybe you'll die on your drive home when you leave here. You know, you just don't know. You can't know. You don't know when that's going to happen. And that's what the preacher wants us to understand next in verses 11 to 12. Understand that life itself is uncertain and outside of your control. And he begins in verse 11 saying, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. That's verse 11. 
nine times out of ten, everything that we just read would usually happen in the opposite way. What I mean is that nine times out of ten, or 99% of the time, the race will go to the swift. The battle will go to the strong, and etc. The list that he names off there. That's just how things work. For example, Jake and I line up on the starting line. Now, nine times out of ten, he's probably going to lose because I'm swift and he's not. Now, that's a joke. But anyways, you, 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 see, what, you see what my point is. <laughs> nine times out of ten, that's just how things are going to work out. If you're fast and the other person's slow, then you're probably going to win. But if you're slow and the other person's fast, then you might as well get ready to accept defeat. Same with the battle. If you're weak, the other person's strong, then chances aren't looking too great for you. But, again, the preacher observes that none of this is guaranteed. Instead, time and chance happen to all of them. I want you to focus in on that word chance for a moment. Because that word literally means happenings. Time and happenings happen to all. In other words, sometimes the expected becomes the unexpected. And your life is the same way. Sometimes the expected just might become the unexpected. Now, as he says in verse 12, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Most of the time when in our, in our life, just because of God's mercy that He shows on us, Usually, we can make our plans and they pan out like we want them to. Usually, you can make a plan and it usually turns out the way that you would like it to. However, like he says here in verse 12, you do not know when normal, your normal expectations of life, what you expect to be, you do not know when that will be shattered before your eyes. And your very life, or the life of someone you love, be taken in a moment. Again, you just don't know. Nine times out of ten, you know, it's probably just going to go like you expect it to go. You wake up in the morning, you go to work, whatever, you go through your, your average routine, your normal routine that you have, you go to bed, you do it all over again. But then all of a sudden... Bam! The next day comes. Your car won't start. And then when it does start, you get down the road, you get hit. You find yourself in a hospital. Or, or whatever. You know, just put things in the blank. We all know that bad stuff happens when we don't want it to happen. And that's what he's saying here. Our lives are like the fish that are taken at an unexpected time, in an evil net, or like the birds that are taken or trapped in a snare. So in light of death being certain, 
And in light of life itself being uncertain and outside of our control, how should we then live? That's what he wants us to see in verse, verses 7 to 10. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you for as long as He gives them to you. And I want you to notice the first word that he has there in verse 7. He says, Go. Go. This is the sixth time that we have seen this enjoyment language in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is the, the strongest language that he uses out of those six times. And I like how David Gibson puts it in his book, Living Life Backward. He says that the preacher is urging us to seize the day. You know, go about your day with purpose. You know, don't just go about the day just, you know, lollygagging around. Set about it with purpose. Go. Seize the day. Enjoy God's gifts. And he names some off. He says, eat your bread. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. And what he means by saying that God has already approved what you do, he means that God has already approved the enjoyment of His gifts. That's why He gave them to us, to be enjoyed. He did not give us gifts so that they could just lay stagnant before us. Think about when you give a gift. You give a gift expecting that the person will use it. You know, if you you give a gift and they don't use it, then you think that, well, they didn't like my gifts. It's the same with God. He gives us gifts and He expects us to enjoy them. He has already approved what we do. Now remember, He approves a right usage of His gifts. How He lays out the parameters that are in His Word. He does not approve when His gifts are abused. That makes Him very angry. And He will repay those who abuse God's His gifts throughout their life. But as long as you use them within the parameters that He has given you, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, then He has approved the enjoyment that you have with His gifts. Another thing that He names in verse 8, He says, Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Now again, that's, that's a strange verse. What does He mean there? Some scholars have noted that whenever the people of Israel were to go into mourning, or if they were distraught, then they would put on sackcloth and ashes to show that they were in mourning or that you know something or they were suffering or something of the like. And so what we see here is the opposite. White garments, oil, which is a sign of blessing being worn. So what he's saying is that you know put on clothing or have the the demeanor of life that's like a, a celebration. You know, celebrate the day that God has given you with whatever He has given you. 
Go about it in that manner. Then he says in verse 9, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Now that can also be seen the other way around, ladies. Enjoy the husband that you have been given. And that doesn't just mean the marriage bed. He says, life. Enjoy life with the wife or the husband whom you love. That means when you wake up in the morning, Enjoy when you get to sit down and eat breakfast with him or her. Enjoy when you get to go on walks together. Enjoy whenever you get to go on a date with one another, whether you're young or old. Enjoy the small things in life with the one whom you love. Enjoy the simple things because that is your portion during the the short life. Again, that word. I think it's unhelpful to say meaningless. Because if it's meaningless, then none of that matters. If it's meaningless, then who cares? It's short-lived life. You have a short amount of time, so enjoy God's gifts. As I said a moment ago, that God has given you for as long as He gives them to you. And then in verse 10, he says, Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol is just the place of the dead. That's what it refers to. The place of the dead. So again, he's, he's using this urging language. You know, whatever you find to do, Do it with your might. Again, you know, go about your day with purpose. Enjoy your gifts. Take hold of them with your might. And if you think about it, that takes thought to do that. Like planning your day. If you want to take the the best, if you want to take advantage of your day, then that means that you have to look ahead and plan it. Consider what your day might look like. So with our gifts, we consider what God has given us, what they look like, what they are. We think about them. How can we enjoy them? How can we lay hold on them with all of our might? And I want to, I forgot to put this in my notes, but David Gibson in his book, Living Life Backwards, he gives an expanded list of some of the gifts that could be given here. And I want to read them to you because I thought it was really, really good. So he says, quoting David Gibson in his, in his book, he says, if we were to tap into the preacher's worldview and train of thought, I think an expanded list would go something like this. Ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon. Go to the theater. Learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, 
Read a book. Laugh with some friends until it makes you cry. Play football. Run a marathon. Snorkel in the ocean. Listen to Mozart. Ring your parents, which just means call them. Write a letter. Play with your kids. Spend your money. Learn a language. Plan a church. Start a school. Speak about Christ. Travel to somewhere you've never been. Adopt a child. Give away your fortune and then some. Shape someone else's life by laying down your own. Especially love that last part. Which is what we saw back in chapter 4. Lay down your life so that others and you yourself can experience fullness of joy and gifts. Now, how, how exactly are we able to do all of this? Because we have all misused and abused God's gifts. And it's tricky because we, the Bible tells us to live for God, first and foremost, to seek Christ, to magnify Him. And now here we're told to, to enjoy the gifts of a world that is passing away, right? So how do we do that? How, how do those two things go together? Again, David Gibson says something that is very helpful. He says, what does it mean to love life and the world if it is passing away? And if I'm meant to enjoy God and live for Christ first and foremost? Let me say that the two things go hand in hand absolutely beautifully. And for this reason, in the created world, you can only enjoy what you do not worship. Think about that for a moment. You can only truly enjoy what you do not worship. Now I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Because in and of ourselves, as I was talking about a moment ago, we've all done this. We've all worshipped God's gifts. And that's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Remember that in the first few chapters of the book of Romans, Paul is laying out how all people are sinners and how they have sinned against God. And this is one of the things that he says, beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, he's talking about Adam and Eve, what happened in the beginning, and every person since then. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. I want you to key in on that word right there. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's talking about not only did they make images of, of animals or whatever, making idols out of those things, but also whatever is in the physical world that you can worship. Gifts is what he's talking about here. Whatever gift it is, whatever it may look like, 
we have exchanged the glory of God for these things. For this reason, continuing in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Stop right there. Because we exchanged, because Adam and Eve exchanged the glory of God for the gifts of God and worshipped them instead of the Creator, God gave us up to those things. Now how does it all become restored? You know, how is it made right? It's where the gospel comes in. That's where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. Because when Christ comes on the scene and He lives for us and He dies for us and He rises from the grave, He takes the wrath of God that we deserve, gives us new life, gives us new desires within our hearts, then He enables us to see God's gifts and to enjoy them how we were intended to from the very beginning which is taking a gift from God and allowing that gift to then springboard us to Him. That gift is meant to show you the goodness, the greatness, the glory, the majesty, the splendor, the splendor of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And only through the Gospel will that happen. Without the Gospel of Christ, you will forever worship something that will never give you satisfaction. So let us enjoy God's gifts in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. For His glory. Father, we come before You and again, as we have met together this, this Sunday morning, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promises. We thank You for Your character and who You are. Father, help us to enjoy Your gifts properly. Help us to understand that Your gifts were never meant to fully satisfy us, to bring us fulfillment. Only You can do that. So through Christ, may we see that the gift speaks of the giver. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.